Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Thornister warns we could face enhanced restrictions in January and February if cases rise over Christmas, as sectors call for clarity on the Level 5 exit plan. And it looks like restaurants and pubs will once again be left in limbo. Richard Chambers of Virgin Media News will be with us with the latest in just a few moments. On our first panel tonight, Tomás Ryan, Associate Professor in School of Biochemistry and Immunology at Trinity College Dublin and Minister of State for Local Government and Planning, Peter Burke. Intercounty travel may be on the cards for Christmas, but no hugs allowed. Plus, are vaccines the beginning of the end to this pandemic? Professor Luke O'Neill joins us. And later in the show, we'll have the latest from Washington, where Donald Trump has been busy pardoning turkeys ahead of Christmas. I hereby grant you a full pardon. And will he need a pardon himself? And will he be vacating the White House for the new year? Get in touch via Twitter with the hashtag TonightVMTV. We're joined first from government buildings by Richard Chambers of Virgin Media News. Fill us in a little bit, please, Richard, on what the Thonishta Leo Varadkar has been saying tonight about the possibility of returning to tough lockdowns in January or February. Why? Well, Matt, the government is effectively laying out its stall for the week as it will progress uh, uh, as towards the announcement later on in the week. The Taoiseach said we aren't over the uh, second wave of COVID-19, but did compare us favourably to the rest of Europe. The Taunashta, however, said that we are likely or we may well face uh, enhanced restrictions in the month of January for a short period, hopefully avoiding a longer period. But this is putting words to what is commonly accepted across politics, people in government buildings in Leinster House, uh, public health officials as well as businesses who have been in contact with politicians have all been discussing the prospect of a January lockdown following the reopening in December. And what that does mean though is that there is some level of acceptance or thought that the reopening of the country in December for Christmas will see an increase in cases because that is what happens to cause lockdowns in the first place. And what are we hearing about the potential for the exit from the level five later this week. How extensive is that exit going to be and how quickly? Well, we do have to wait and see what comes out of this. We have, of course, uh, awaiting the NEFET meeting, which is taking place tomorrow. A cabinet will be meeting, of course, on uh, Thursday. They may have another meeting on Friday, so announcement could be uh, probably around Friday afternoon at this point. You have seen you know, talk already about restaurants reopening, about uh, cinemas and museums and galleries. Pubs, on the other hand, it does seem like they will be waiting uh, quite some time. Wet pubs, as they have been uh, described, have been discussed by government officials. It does at the moment uh, seem that there is no prospect of them reopening this side of Christmas, although uh, that decision yet to be taken. 
One of the successes of recent months has been the return to schools. But yet reports emerging tonight that there may be a significant case involving one school in the south of the country. What can you tell us about that? Yes, Matt, well, this news just reaching us in the past few minutes. This is a school in County Cork, and the HSE writing to the school. 17 cases have been confirmed across a number of classes. The HSE describing this as unusual uh, in terms of its scale in the Irish context. I have seen uh, the letter which has been sent uh, to the school, to parents there, uh, to children at the school. The, we understand the school is, has in the region of about 400 pupils. Uh, those uh, students will be referred to, to, for testing. Uh, restricted movements, of course, will be applied there as well. And of course, for positive cases, isolation as well. This news just breaking, but it does appear to be a very significant outbreak and uh, the school will be closed uh, until the 8th of December, we understand. Thank you very much for that, Richard Chambers. Well, back in studio now, we're joined by Peter Burke, Junior Minister. Uh, first of all, would the Tónistas comments today about enhanced restrictions being possible in January and February, is that almost sort of a warning to people, you better behave yourselves over the Christmas period or we'll be back in this mess again? Look, I think it's no secret it's a very uh, difficult path that the government is trying to tread. You'd want the wisdom of Solomon trying to differentiate between avoiding going back to level five and easing restrictions substantially to give people a good quality life over the month of December. And that's where obviously the challenge is going to be for our government and how it can mitigate that. It's all about reducing, lowering the risk as much as possible. And obviously that's the path this week is going to take. But have effectively the government made a decision in advance of the NEFID recommendation that we are going to exit level five? Well, what if NEFID was to come back and say, well, actually, we've looked at the figures. They haven't dropped enough. We're seriously concerned. We strongly recommend that the state should remain in level five. Will the government ignore, dismiss that advice if it comes? No, I don't think government will dismiss the advice, but government is the decision maker. I think that's the key here. Public health advice is weighed up by NEFID as they do in terms of their prism, but government has to look at the wider picture, the society, mental health issues, how our businesses are affected, what the prospects are for our economy and jobs in 2021, and put all that together and make its decision. I think key to that will be NEFID advice, but at the end of the day, the government has to balance that and it has to mitigate the risk for 2021 and hopefully trying to ease restrictions substantially, but avoiding going back into level five or even level four in January. And that's key, trying to avoid that. Thomas Ryan, what do you make of that, that even if there was a recommendation to come from NFET to stay in level five, that other considerations, given the time of year, will trump that? It is the government's decision, but the definition of insanity is doing the same thing again and expecting a different result. If we open up and there are hundreds of cases a day, we will be heading to an accelerated path towards lockdown, probably in January. The way to out of this is not about looking for a fictitious balance. The way out of this is by getting cases down. That is, generally speaking, been the recommendation of NEFIT. But last time, we didn't keep them down. We need three things. We need to persist with restrictions until we get cases down to at least single digits. Then we need to do proper travel quarantine, which we seriously failed on last time. And then we need to properly resource public health supported by test trace isolation, which can only work when cases are low. And we don't need the wisdom of Solomon. We just need to look outside of Europe. We're leading Europe now. We're only behind Finland. And Christmas is an opportunity because when you take this 
raucous socializing that we're used to out of it, which unfortunately we can't do this year. It's also a very quiet month where schools are closed mostly and there's not a lot of movement in workplaces. If we take advantage of this, we can move away from this European habit of going in and out of lockdowns and learn from Nova Scotia, learn from Australia, learn from South Korea, where once you get cases really no, low doesn't mean absolute zero, just means very close to zero, no mystery cases then we can use our public health infrastructure to keep them low and move out of this and open the economy for good without further lockdowns. You talk about getting under 100 cases a day, but is that really necessary? If we're at a situation at the moment where we have between two or 300 the last couple of days, if only a small number of those people end up in hospital, a smaller number in ICU and an even smaller number dying, would that not suggest that we can live with those sort of numbers without having to have enormous restrictions imposed? No, I don't think so. But you have to think about the virus as a fire. That's what exponential growth is. It doubles, it doubles, it doubles. And you'd have to ask our public health physicians who are very overworked, underappreciated. We only have about 60 of them in the country. Ask them how many cases they can effectively handle. We can do it when it's 10 to 50 cases a day. I think once you get into the hundreds, you're going to lose control. But of isn't there a difference between now and earlier in the year when we had hundreds up to 1,000 cases a day, we had much bigger numbers going into ICU and bigger numbers dying, numbers been hospitalized. If that's not happening now, does that mean that this virus is as serious as it was earlier in the year? It's very clearly as serious as, as, serious as, as it was earlier in the year. Internationally, the infection fatality rate is holding up. We just didn't have as good as a testing coverage earlier in the year. So we're not comparing like with like, but we still have the risk of overwhelming the health service if we don't control it. Tom also brought up an interesting point there that Christmas is actually a time when maybe there's no people aren't mingling at work, they're not in schools, so there maybe is an opportunity. Is there going to be an appeal to people to sort of not just not hug each other, but to cut back on the drink over Christmas, to curtail the socialising? I think personal responsibility is key to where we are now, and that's going to be on trust for the month of December, to try and encourage that, to keep up our etiquette, and to ensure that we're acting responsibly as a people. That's going to be key. But I would argue in terms of the first uh, wave that we've had in this country, the cases were there. Just because our testing infrastructure wasn't as strong, that doesn't mean the cases were there. So the path of the virus, the second wave, has changed significantly in terms of those in hospital, in terms of our ICU units. And that's because we have a better knowledge of treating it. It's because the age profile of people that are getting it. And we have learned more as a people about the virus. So I think that's key. And secondly, in terms of keeping our cases down into single digits, you know, we have two different political systems in this country. We have two different... Uh, healthcare systems on the island. So it is hugely challenging. When you compare to Australia and places like that, ours is a very small, vulnerable, open economy, a land mass that's shared by another jurisdiction. And it's very difficult for us to go to a zero COVID or something like it. So what we are doing is we're suppressing the virus to wait to vaccinate. And that's been our challenge, to keep it suppressed as best we can and keep our society open as much as we can during that period. To be fair, Canada and Australia also consist of states that are sharing borders and they're not all zero COVID and yet they managed it. But the real question, I think, which you brought up is one of individual responsibility. We hear a lot of talk about this so far. I think that everyone is doing their best in terms of citizens. I also think the government are doing their best. But we've put each other in an impossible situation where when we have a framework that is literally called living with the virus, the only sane thing that all of the lobby groups can do is say, please open up, please let us open up. And eventually the government have no choice but to say, okay, let's open up. But this is not the way but people... But what harm would it do to let people have a few pints in a pub if they're adequately socially distant, have to be out in 105 minutes and have a meal with it as well? 
The harm is that if we do it too soon, and I want to do that, I think we can all do that in January, February, we'll lose control of this. And if you look at what the majority of the population wants, there is a silent majority, 86% of citizens want these restrictions or more, 25%. Where's the source for that? The source is the Department of Health. They, uh, the the Amorok poll commissioned by the Department of Health says very clearly this week, 60% of citizens are satisfied with the current restrictions and 25% think we need tougher restrictions. On top of that, Matt, if you talk to real small businesses, if you talk to restauranteurs and particularly publicans, they will say that they know what we're doing is not the right way of doing things. They can see that they're not going to stay open. They can see that a couple of weeks at Christmas is not going to save their business. We need to get cases down to effectively zero community transmission, not absolute zero, and then we can open in a sustainable way. Well, Tomas, as it happens, we have a restaurateur joining us now via Skype, Sally Ann Clark, the owner of Dublin's Lech Ravan restaurant. Uh, Sally Ann, what do you make of what Tomas has just said there that you might be better off not opening before Christmas to get a couple of weeks of business if you were going to lose the business on the far side in the new year? I don't agree. Uh, basically, Christmas is of our business, and we all have a feeling there's going to be another lockdown after Christmas. The numbers really nicely, and then they were up again. And I think that if you are in a um, and safe, go out. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Sally, and we're going to have to come out of that because the sound quality is very, very poor. But I think we got the gist of it, Tomás. She wants to open before Christmas. The gist of it is we have this fatalism, which is terrible, that we're going to have a lockdown anyway in January, so let's just open for a few weeks at Christmas. We need to get away from this way of thinking, we can do better, the population wants us to do better. Psychologically, though, don't we need the opportunity to do a few things in advance of Christmas, get out, socialise, see people, almost as a reward for what we've put up with this year? When I talk to my colleagues in Melbourne, and I see how they're responding now as they relative to a month ago, they went through that lockdown. Now they're arguing over which beach they're going to have their Christmas uh, dinner on. It's a completely different world there now. They have complete freedom. They can do what they want. It's a, that's what we need to move towards. We can get there in January. Maybe not the whole country, but the nice thing about a zero COVID strategy, if you look at Canada or Australia, is you can do it regionalized. There's no region why, reason why all of Munster could not have eliminated the virus by early January. Most of Connacht too. It will take a bit longer for Leinster. But if we do it on a regional basis, and if we protect our zero COVID counties, we've already had zero COVID counties. We have some now. We need to restrict travel into those counties, give those people more freedom, and open up as much of the country as we can sooner. Tell us what is likely to open up. I know you can't preempt the government decision, but you must be planning on the basis of things like shops, hairdressers. What else are you going to allow open for yeah, next I would, week? I would suspect so, because I think uh, we do need to try and get the balance right. And that's going to be the challenge, to give businesses a chance over Christmas, because obviously it is a key time for them to raise revenue. Uh, I see and meet... Uh, be it publicans, restauranteurs, I know the pressure they're under and their staff are under and they want certainly to for Christmas because they have supply chains to meet, to have orders to get ready if they're going to be given that opportunity uh, to open and we need to give them certainty this week and the government will move to do that. But I do see and one thing I would say, businesses have endured so much pressure and stress and I do think that we do need to try and accommodate them as best we can. It is a challenge but we have to do our best on it. We're going to try Sally Ann again, hopefully the connection will work better this time. Sally Ann, you you may have to wait another 10 days or so before reopening. How important would 
two or three weeks in a row to Christmas be to you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. It'll be very important. But again, we need as much notice as possible. We got six hours notice in Dublin when they closed us down on the 18th of September, and we had full stocks in for the whole weekend. So if they're going to let us open, we really need as much notice as possible. And um, we need a date where we can say, yes, you're going to open on the 1st, or you're going to open on the 7th. Because we've been taking bookings from the 1st based on the fact that they said we were going to reopen on the 1st, or they were going to reopen the country and the economy on the first. So we need time for, you know, kitchen setup, front of house setup, and admin setup. And I think every restaurant will be the same. So if they're not going to let us open till the seventh, please tell us now. Don't tell us on the fifth when we have to just scurry to get ready. We really want to do this properly. And I mean, we've been doing our best. And I know 99% of restaurants have been doing their best too. And um, I mean, I feel very sorry for the publicans because they haven't been able to open at all. Um, but I, I do think that this is 30% of our trade for the whole year. And I think it's very important. I also think it's important for people to have somewhere to go in a controlled atmosphere where they can be safe and they can be assured that everybody's done everything they can to make sure that they are safe when they're you know, having their little time out, whether it's for an hour and 45 minutes or two hours. I think people will be just delighted to get out and it'll put a stop to the house parties, which let's face facts here. You can go to the off license, you can stock up and you can have a party till, you know, all hours in the morning or all day or all night. And um, at least in a restaurant or a pub, you can have a controlled atmosphere and you can have controlled conditions. And I think that's the way to go, to be honest. Thank you very much, Sally Ann. Uh, when it comes to retail as well, Peter Burke, I mean, are you going to facilitate a 24-hour opening, perhaps, to try and make sure that you can manage the queues better rather than having the traditional rush to pick up all the turkeys at Christmas? Yeah, I think that's been examined, it's been looked at at the moment, and the planning considerations around that, because anything that can facilitate people, and I know that does happen in a lot of cases anyway, uh, whereby you have supermarkets, etc., that do open on a 24-hour basis and they run up to Christmas to avoid queues, because the last thing we want is, you know, huge pressure on retail. We need to manage this as best as we, as we can. And that's why the government is taking time, because the numbers are dropping. And we saw from the numbers today, the government wants to have as much information as possible when they make their decision. But what about the information that Tomas has referred to, the Department of Health Service, suggesting that it's only 14% who really want to 
come out of the lockdown that the majority of people are satisfied, some want more to be actually done, that you may, have you just been listening to the business lobbies and vested interests and making decisions to suit them rather than what the will of the people is? No, I've been listening to people from all across uh, all demographics. I've been listening to people who are frustrated they can't go to Mass. Their faith means a huge amount to them in life and they are so frustrated by that. Uh, and I've listened to people that are in business. I've listened to employees that want certainty to try and ensure that they can plan for their family for Christmas. And some people who are very vulnerable that that need you know some, some kind of outlier, something to look forward to. And that's hugely frustrating on people. We, we're going to Washington later in the programme where, of course, this week is Thanksgiving in the United States. Is there anything we should be looking out for there and also what's happened in Canada's version of Thanksgiving, which will give us pause for consideration in relation to how we treat Christmas? Canada's version of Thanksgiving, Canada's Thanksgiving did not go well. It led to a significant uh, double wave of cases um, and a spike in, in hospitalizations. Um, in the United States, they're discouraging people from traveling there as much as they can. There's been more than a million people a day moving via flights over the weekend. Um, it's, it's very worrying. They have higher case numbers than us, but it is something we need to keep in mind. We also need to keep in mind that Christmas as a family occasion is a very sacred thing. So are funerals, so are weddings, so is childbirth. And people have been doing that under very restrictive conditions throughout the pandemic. That's a reference point for how we need to be approaching We are this. going to be talking about vaccines in the next section, but would you fear that we could have a sort of a yo-yo situation between now and the full availability of vaccines at some stage in 20, 2021, where we could be going in and out of level five? Matt, we don't know when vaccines are going to be widely available to change our, the way we're living. Realistically, you're talking about the third quarter, maybe the fourth quarter, if we're unlucky, of 2021. So in between, a long way off. In between that, there's the possibility of having two or three more lockdowns the way we're going. So we need to prevent that. And I think just to conclude, the pandemic is not a failure of individuals. It's a failure of the system. Everyone is doing their best at every level but it's just not working and no one is happy with this situation. What we need is government and business leaders and lobbyists to make some very brave choices right now to say, not that we were wrong, but everything we're doing is just not working. And we need to step outside of the framework with which we're thinking about things so far and to just reorientate ourselves towards the next nine months. Thank you very much. We'll leave it there with you, Tomas Ryan. Thank you for joining us. Peter Burke is staying with us, but after the break, how will we be allowed to travel and celebrate this Christmas with warnings given of no hugs been allowed? Professor Luke O'Neill will be joining us too. Welcome back. Well, the Minister of State, Peter Burke, is still with us, but we're joined now by Professor Luke O'Neill, the immunologist. And look, we're hearing today that, yeah, you will be allowed to visit family members on Christmas Day, but don't hug. I mean, is that realistic? Is that really necessary, the idea that granny no. can't hug the grandchildren, even parents can't hug the, their children? They should be that hug for definite. That seems a bit strict to me, to be honest. You can safely hug someone very briefly. Obviously, it's to do with the amount of time and the contact. If you are anxious, wear a mask and have a hug, for example, or do it outdoors. But hugging should be allowed. I don't know why that was said at all, to be honest. And would you be worried, though, that when people are in houses together, if they're in close contact with each other, sitting around kitchen table or whatever, that there is the 
potential for spreading of the illness? Well, first, it's essential we allow people meet at Christmas. Let me start with that. Many of us are saying this now. Two or three households, first of all. Now, you've got to remember, mitigate against the virus. It can be done safely. And the government, I'm sure, will issue the guidelines now. So, social distancing in the house, number one. Number two, ventilation. These are all possible inside a house. We know the risk for the last few months, what the science tells us. It's a stuffy room, no air circulation, too long together. That spreads the virus. So, if we can mitigate against that, it should be possible for three households to meet. No matter how cold it might be on Christmas Day, throw the windows wide open and let as much air in as possible. Bite the bullet, sadly. Have a heater on or a humidifier, you know, as well. You can do those things. Have a blanket around the grandfather. as It's awful now. I know nobody wants to be like this. But just for this Christmas, now remember, Matt, my best analogy now is it's a boxing match. We're up on points against this virus, but keep the guard up. You might get a killer punch. For one day only, because you know the way you visit some members of the family on Christmas Day, the following day you're off to see others, you do it again the day after, and all the parties that people are used to going to now in the run-up to Christmas, is it just going to be the one day it's only? It's going to be restricted. Again, common sense might prevail. You could be in a bubble, like three households together could meet for three or four days maybe, but don't be, you've got to decrease your contacts is the bottom line. We have to do that. And yet, Peter, the World Health Organization is telling people to avoid family gatherings, that it would be the safest bet. It's just not practical though, is it? No, it is very difficult and there's a huge challenge for government here. The challenge is obviously to try and keep our contacts reduced as much as possible over Christmas with also trying to avoid, as we said, entering into another lockdown in January or February. That's what we're trying to to do and to mitigate the risks on that basis to ensure that we can have the best possible Christmas to be with our families. Does that mean inter-county travel is going to be restricted to maybe Christmas Eve, Christmas Day and Stephen's Day? I suspect it will be limited up until Christmas week, but that guidance will be produced this week. Like Certainty will be given. Government will produce guidance. It will give certainty after the various meetings with NEFIT and the Cabinet subcommittees this week. And what about things like hotels, which do a lot of business over Christmas, people going for maybe a break that they're looking forward to, will they be allowed to travel out of their counties to do that? I'm not sure exactly on that. I'd say that would be clarified next week. But I saw firsthand in the last uh, period the good work that hotels did. They did mitigate the risk significantly. But unfortunately, as contacts increase with people, and that seems to be the case, the virus spreads so quickly and the number of contacts increase, obviously, and the virus starts to increase. And that's the big challenge for us all. Luke, I want to ask you a couple of questions about how the vaccine would be administered, particularly to people who don't want it in a moment. But just off air there during the break, you've seen wildly enthusiastic about the possibilities for the three vaccines we've been talk- told about today. There's more, every day there's more optimism. Now, we're not there yet, remember. So there's two more fences to jump. One is the regulators have to look at the data. And that's the FDA in America, the EMA in Europe. They're in the middle of this with Pfizer, for example. Robert Redfield this afternoon said he's expecting the Pfizer vaccine to be approved in about a week, two weeks max. He said 20 million Americans will be vaccinated before Christmas. And then by the end of March, full rollout in America of that vaccine. Now, again, he's, he's predicting this. and When will this we get a vaccine here in Ireland and if, in Europe? Because if, the way Tomás Ryan was talking about before uh, the break, he was saying it could be the third quarter of the year, the final quarter, if, before everyone's vaccinated. Well, there are now at least five vaccines they're saying will be working. Okay, Each will be making two million doses. We'll have 10 billion doses, rather. You know, We will get 1% of the EU divvy. That'll be 9 million doses to Ireland. That could arrive... April, May kind of time, and then we see the rollout beginning then. If we're very lucky, next summer we begin to see widespread vaccination. If we're lucky, that might take it a bit longer. Things can always take, you know, a bit longer than we think. But remember, Matt, five vaccines. The Russian vaccine is working as well, by the way. They announced their data, you know, kind of on the QT, 90% efficacy there as well. The Johnson & Johnson vaccine is about to announce. So again, the optimism is growing, but we, we still need to jump these extra fences before we can be sure. OK, what do you make, though, those suggestions? Alan Joyce, the Irish-born boss of Qantas Airline in Australia, 
is saying that people will have to prove they've been vaccinated before they're allowed to fly. You've had the likes of Ticketmaster in the US suggesting that they may require people to provide proof of vaccination before they can buy concert tickets or go to a game. Is that appropriate, do you think, that we have those restrictions placed upon you, people? You hope it's going to be consensus, Matt. You want people to vaccinate voluntarily. That'd be tremendous because you're vaccinating for the whole community, remember. The way out of this mess is vaccination. Every, all the scientists agree on this. You know, there's massive unanimity. Now, some of them, there are some dissenters, I would admit. But the unanimity is the vaccine is the way out. How do we convince people to vaccinate? Making it mandatory doesn't work. People don't like that. You can't force people. It's a free country. So instead, you say, look, it's your choice not to vaccinate, but you can't fly to Australia. That's your choice. If you don't want to go to Australia, that's the choice you make. And that's what Qantas have said. But, but could it be effectively that although countries will be reluctant to tell their citizens you must vaccinate, that other countries will do it for them, that you won't be able to travel to any other country in the world unless you can prove you're vaccinated, as it is for certain illnesses yeah. already? That might happen. And Ticketmaster are clever. Matt, if you want gigs to come back in sporting, they've said this, if you want a gig to come back or in a sporting event, you have to show you've been vaccinated to attend it. Now, that's a price worth paying for some. Maybe it's your choice if you don't want to go to the gig. You don't, you, that's the way it is. We may see these kinds of things. Now, again, it's a work in progress. Every government will grapple with this. Remember, how are we going to bring the vaccine to the people and get them to, to take the vaccine? It won't be easy. But Peter, could we be on a slippery slope here that if you have a situation whereby people are told you can't travel or you can't go to a match or you can't go to a concert unless you're vaccinated, what would happen if employers started telling people you can't work for us unless you can prove you've been vaccinated if people do not want to be vaccinated? Well, I would definitely hope we wouldn't get to that point. For any of the data that has been published or that I've seen so far, it's well into the 60% of people that would take the vaccine. And critical to that, there seems to be over 20% of people who are undecided. And it's important that if we can get the vast lion's share of that 20% plus into the category that will vaccinate. And we do that by explaining it to people, showing them the data. It's all very important to show it's the biggest clinical trials that ever were, 43,000 on one. It's huge in terms of the data we have. And it's important that government independently has to try... But can you understand that there might be people who Absolutely. would be a little bit reluctant about a vaccine which has been developed so quickly as to potential side effects which haven't been seen yet? Yeah, but we've never seen a united response to a virus that has so throughout the world in terms of everyone united, pooling all the resources, all the large companies as well, trying to get a cure for this. And that has been key. Everyone has been joined up trying to do that. So we will be very hopeful that based on the data, which suggests that, you know, it is a very strong, credible vaccine with strong efficacy and to ensure that we can get that out as quickly as we can to people. And that allows us to go back to... But you won't have punishments again. for people who decide not to take the vaccine. I would hope we won't go down that road because I think if you start going down that road, you're losing the people. You really have to, you know, give the information out there. And we've seen with other, like polio and various different uh, viruses and diseases, how we've changed the world with, va world with vaccines. Vaccines has revolutionised how we, how we travel, how we do our daily business. And that's something we're going to get to in the third part of the programme, Luke. But would you be concerned as well, though, that at present in battling against the existence of COVID-19, the continued existence, that the possibility of the vaccine has made some people perhaps a little bit complacent. That's the fear. The vaccine isn't here yet. It will take a while to roll out and we have to get to 70% protection really is the number we're looking for. You might have 50% compliance initially, so there's 20 still to go. We keep doing everything else as well. Difficult as it is, keep wearing the masks and the distancing for the foreseeable future, sadly. But then we're getting used to it, hopefully. You know? And then we will get there. The, the, the good news here, Matt, is we're going to see the exit strategy from this pandemic. But how confident would you be that the health authorities here in Ireland will be able to deliver the vaccine, administer it, 
uh, quickly and effectively. That's the next challenge. The government has two challenges. One is to get it out and, and get the deployment bit right. And then secondly, to encourage people. And encouragement's the word, man. You can't make people do this. It's very important. We, can't, we don't make them. It's encouragement. They're the two challenges that we'll now have after Christmas. So what will the task force do in that regard? What incentives will it provide to people to make sure they do get vaccinated quickly? Well, obviously, the, the, the Taoiseach and the government has appointed Breen McCraw, the high-level group, trying to plan this out. We want to do this early. It's important we get it right. Uh, we've seen there's a huge take-up from the flu vaccine this year, which is very good. That is a good news story. Even though it was under stress in terms of the infrastructure, the take-up was very high, you know, uh, only a metric compared to what it, what it was before. But we have had problems with testing and tracing when it comes to COVID-19. Yeah, and we've learned from that, absolutely. And I think uh, it's very important that the government has been very clear that once we've got this period of time that we have strengthened our infrastructure, our testing and tracing lead times are down, we have added in 70 to 80 contact tracers a week because one thing we have to have, government has to live up to its priority of getting the infrastructure right, that we have our testing and tracing right as we slowly try to open up for this Christmas period. Okay, so how quickly do you think you'll be in a position? And if the vaccine becomes available to the country in January, will the state be ready to actually roll out? I would out? hope they will, but it's very difficult to say in terms of logistically. Like what the plan is, obviously, is to try and do the most vulnerable first, people in our nursing homes, our healthcare workers. And then that obviously changes the calculus of our restrictions because we can therefore look differently at the prism of how we reopen our economy. OK, we leave it there on that. Lots more after the break. Our thanks to Peter Burke, who is leaving us. But Luke O'Neill is staying with us. And CNN's Karen Kaffa will also be joining us from Washington. Whereas Donald Trump finally thrown in the towel and conceded the US presidential election. We'll have the latest from there. Welcome back. Professor Luke O'Neill is still with us, but we're also joined by Dr. Ida Milne, social historian with Carlow College and a specialist when it comes to pandemics. You know the way everyone is talking about that nothing will ever be the same again once we come through this. What does history tell us about going back to the way things were after a pandemic has passed? Well, the 1918 flu, the 1919 flu, um, pretty much everything went back to normal and people quickly, quite quickly forgot about it afterwards. But they'd been through a hell of a trauma. They'd had the First World War as well as the revolutionary period here in Ireland. So they were probably really longing, you know, for a bit of partying and, and getting out and, and um, everything went back to normal really quickly. But is there a peculiar thing about human psychology that when there's been a major illness like that, people actually want to forget about it, almost or pretend that it didn't happen? Yeah, it seems to very much have been the case because it literally was forgotten, not just in Irish history, but also globally. And it was only when Alfred Crosby, the great American environmental historian in the 1970s, started to talk about this huge silent um, trauma that had never been spoken about and yet had infected the war, maybe even influenced the outcome of the First World War and had, um, you know, felled people like Woodrow Wilson in the middle of the Paris Peace Conference. Does history also show cycles that we get pandemics that there were many people who were warning us for years to years that something like this actually was bound to happen they may have said it would be sort of a flu outbreak it happened to be something different yeah, I think that um, there are stages when medicine gets quite cocky and in a way nature shows them what's what then. And that certainly happened in 1918, 1919, that, that they thought that they had uh, infectious disease under control with bacteriology. And, uh, but that since uh, I think about the 1500s, they, it's been possible to identify, um, I think, 14 different um, influenza pandemics. And they, they came about every 30 years. So um, we had 
um, the 1890s Russian flu. Very quickly after that, we had the 1918, 1920 in some parts of the world, um, Spanish flu. Then we had in 1957, the Asian flu in 68, the Hong Kong flu. And then there was a long wait. And I think um, it's fair to say science and medicine got nervous or else also thought, oh, look, we have it all under control now. One or the other, you know, two conflicting views there. And then we had, it was 2009 before we had an officially declared pandemic um, with the, the Mexican influenza A pandemic then. Do economies tend to bounce back? Because we had Danny McCoy of Ibeck with us last week, very confident that once the vaccine is distributed, people have it, that there will be a very sharp rebound in the economy. Does that necessarily happen? Uh, well, with the 2009 pandemic, obviously it, it really flattened Mexico's tourism industry in the short term. Uh, I think it was about 20 billion quid's worth of damage it did to it, but it, it did bounce back fairly quickly. Um, in 1918, 1919, again, it's very hard to, to pull away the war statistics from what happened, but certainly the, the, the 20s were the roaring 20s. People were spending. And then followed the by the Great Depression. Followed as well. by the Great Depression. Yeah. Luke, what do you make of this? I mean, do you think will the vaccine be the end game for the coronavirus pa pandemic that we will? in a year's time be wondering what the hell was all that about? We, we, we won't forget it, Matt. That's for definite, by the way. It'll be like 1980. I'm sure I would agree. It's been a massive effect on the world's population. So we're not going to forget it in a hurry. We may be more cautious, hopefully, once we get out of it. But things will begin to go back to normal, remember. Now, we may still have a bit of distancing and occasional mask wearing here and there, but life will return to normal and the vaccine will be the big way to do this, I guess. Why? If we have an effective vaccine, why would we need to con continue with social distancing and wearing masks? It's nervousness. You see, the SARS pandemic, or the SARS outbreak, I guess you'd call it, and the MERS, that, that wasn't massive. Only 10,000 people died, but that gave rise to mass mask wearing in Asia more and more, you know, so people remembered, even though it was small scale, I guess. We don't want this to happen again, do we? Let's face it. And that memory will persist for a while, is, is the prediction, I guess. Okay, tell me a little bit more about this vaccine, though, because we touched on this a little bit earlier, but could there be potential side effects that are not known about as yet, which would give us cause for concern? There's always unknowns with vaccines. The first was how efficacious is it? I mean, we've ticked that box now with, with four of them, 90% around, say. The second one then is, will there be any problems? Now, the, normally you, you see side effects within a month of giving the vaccine, right? In, in history, you see the side effects emerge within a month. We're less worried about long-term effects. That'll be watched closely, though. Once the vaccine's rolled out, you vaccinate millions of people, they'll watch very closely to see if anything, anything is going wrong. But we're optimistic that once we've gone through this first safety hurdle, it should be fine. You know. Now, remember, there are adverse events. They're very rare. You've got to be honest with people. Vaccines occasionally have harmed people, you know, but it's a minority, tiny, tiny numbers. And, and the risk of that is so small that you justify the use of the vaccine. And what good have they done? What illnesses have been eradicated that would have ten, potentially taken tens, hundreds of millions of lives? Well, the consensus view is if you the top five medical advances, vaccines is number one. It's saved millions and millions and millions of lives through history. Smallpox was a scourge. You know, hundreds of millions of people died of smallpox. The vaccine got rid of smallpox entirely. Polio was the big one that people are all might remember. In the 1950s, there were 20,000 children a year being paralysed by polio in America. The vaccine came out. Within four years, it was less than 10 people. And that was the vaccine protected all those children. And there's countless examples Matt, of, of, of vaccines having a hugely beneficial effect. But isn't there also historically an awful lot of examples of people fighting against vaccines and saying, be it on religious grounds or health grounds, actually trying to say, don't take them, these are dangerous to you? Yeah, there's a long history of, of that uh, right through with smallpox. And we had um, smallpox uh, protesters here in Ireland in, in, in uh, the Republican movement in, in the 1910s. Um, but, you know, right around the world, you, we have had... Um, 
um, real issues with that, that people think that the vaccines, indeed in, in 19, 1918, they thought that uh, the typhus vaccine that was given to the American troops was what was actually spreading um, the flu disease and that it was a reaction. Of course, mm. that happened at a time when we didn't have the, the internet as we have now. Would there be concerns, or perhaps this time around, that the availability of the internet to push out conspiracy theories could make it more difficult to actually get people to accept a vaccine? It's not only pushing out conspiracy theories about today's vaccines, but also about what happened in the past. So you see the proliferation of uh, vaccine conspiracy or vaccine theories about, you know, the 5G masks and all those kind of things are, are uh, really escalating massively on the internet. And what do you do about it? It's really what hard. What do you do, Luke? You've got to be aware of it, first of all, and encounter it as best you can. It's tough, though. It will be there. It's almost impossible to stop that kind of thing. Again, you appeal to reasonable people and say, look, here's the data, here's the safety data. Here's the evidence we have. Here's the history of vaccines. Here's what every healthcare agency in the world, if the FDA approve these vaccines, will say, Vac use this vaccine. And then hopefully people go, right, I'll go in with that and, and, but, and follow. What about then everyone being able to get the vaccine and been distributed fairly? Because I think if you go back to the 1950s and the polio vaccine, Dr. Jonas Salk, there was, the Americans made sure that everybody got it globally. I mean, how concerned would you be that history doesn't always work out like that, that people, that some countries countries might keep vaccine for themselves and not distribute it in other parts of the world to poorer countries. Absolutely. I mean, that's always a concern. I suppose the t traditional focus would have been on Africa, but Africa's actually doing quite well, isn't it, Luke, in, 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 uh, with uh, COVID-19. Um, so that, that, that is an issue. It would be lovely to see a mass global plan, and I think we have some moves mm. in that, haven't we? AstraZeneca said they're going to give two billion doses away to poor countries, for instance. They're on record as saying that. An organisation called COVAX is a fantastic... That's 90 governments are putting money into a pot to provide vaccines for low-income and middle-income countries. So we're very... The point is, man, it's self-interest. If the virus has got rid of in Europe and it's burning away somewhere else, that's not good because it come, come back in again. So there's two reasons to do it. One is to help these poorer countries, but secondly, to stop it coming back. So there's but incentives... Some of these pharmaceutical companies taking different models in their approach to the vaccine and that some are doing it for profit and others are doing it because they feel it's the right thing to do. I think in the first instance, it'll be free. All the companies will probably give this away for free. Certainly AstraZeneca will. Pfizer on record is saying they'll try to make this free. Now, governments have paid already up front for many of these things, you see. So all those companies were invested in by the EU, invested in some of these companies, you see. So we've paid already for the vaccine, in a sense. So it should be free. And then maybe in year two or three, they may recoup some of their investment, I guess. That might happen next. But certainly in the first instance, the hope is these vaccines are free to everybody in the world. If they weren't to be free, how much would they cost people? Well, the, the AstraZeneca one's much cheaper. That's $5 a shot, they're saying at the moment. Uh, the Pfizer one is $20 a shot and Moderna is $23 a shot. So we know AstraZeneca is... Is that the cost 20... price? Because you know the way other costs get added on for yeah. the administration, distribution, that, that, warehousing, that, the rest of it. That's the basic cost of the vaccine. Now, now what, what can happen is they charge you for vaccinating you. That's the other worry we would have. You know, In other words, the vaccine is free, but it's going to be 10 euro to, to be given. That won't happen, by the way, we hope. But you wouldn't believe, Matt, that the attention on this is massive. 
this is a chance for the world to unite, remember. And in fact, Biden himself, did you hear him? He said, this is a world problem. It will take a world sort of together to fight this. And it's a tremendous, let's hope it's true, I suppose. Let's, I let's hope people join forces in this way. It's also a big chance for public health and vaccination to show its worth and to get really good quality information across to the public and things like using, like um, incorporating stories from people who are damaged by these diseases and, and obviously COVID-19, long COVID-19 people to talk about it and to explain just exactly what happens. To finish with you, Ad, I believe you, you think we're in what you call a fizzle stage at present. What does that mean? Yeah, the um, Harvard um, professor of the history of medicine, Charles uh, Rosenberg, argues that um, every um, major epidemic of disease goes through kind of four acts like a play. And it begins with... Um, uh, you know, the fear and the unknown disease, and then gradually the disease gets manageable, and then uh, science gets to grip with it. But the final stage is when it disappears off the news and it's fizzled out, and that's the stage we're really longing for. Aren't we just? Thank you very much for being with us. So Donald Trump has been busy at the annual Thanksgiving turkey pardon, but is it time for him to get stuffed and to vacate the White House in time for Christmas? We're joined now from Washington by CNN's Karen Kaffa, Karen, are people pardoning Donald Trump for his egregious behaviour in recent weeks since he lost the election? Well, Matt, it is typical that when you have a transition, whether it's the end of a one-term president or someone who is leaving after two terms, that the transition is gracious in the best interest of the United States. And that is not what we have seen from the president himself. He actually hasn't spoken publicly in a number of days. We saw him at the podium in the White House briefing room earlier today, but he did not take questions from reporters. And as you mentioned, he took part in that turkey pardoning that traditionally takes place for the American Thanksgiving holiday. Other than that, he's been tweeting a lot about uh, these baseless accusations of widespread electoral fraud. But just yesterday, his administration and the person responsible within it for ascertaining the election, acknowledging that a transition is taking place, finally made that move, giving the Biden team access to key transition funding and resources they need to prepare to take office on January 20th. So President Trump himself says he is continuing his fight, even even though there is no basis for it and now only reluctantly is acknowledging that members of his administration will have to deal with the Biden team to make that transition smooth, Matt. What would he be likely to do if he is ejected as planned from the White House, return to business, go into a new career in media or just go play golf in Mar-a-Lago? Well, that will be the big question, Matt, and certainly Republicans are eager to see what happens because there has been talk in Trump's immediate circle that maybe he would try to run again for president in 2024. That was kind of presented to him as an enticement to get him to concede the election, which he has not done yet, even though these steps are in motion for Joe Biden to take office. So that will be the big question. Of course, there is still almost two months before the Biden team takes over, and there is a lot of work to be done. Of course, the U.S. hit so hard by the coronavirus pandemic, more than 12 million cases so far during the pandemic, and the number of new daily cases just continues to spike. It is expected to get exponentially worse 
over the coming weeks before Joe Biden takes office. There are a number of things that need to be done with the economy. You've got millions of Americans who are unemployed as a result of the shutdowns associated with the pandemic. And so that is something that needs to be handled as well. So as far as President Trump, as more announcements are made about the Biden transition team and as more American states certify their election results, that was something that the Trump team was holding out hope for, that maybe they could sow enough doubt around the certification of election results that maybe they could make this long shot effort to to uh, try to uh, wheedle a second term for the president. That is becoming so unlikely with Pennsylvania, Nevada, Michigan this week certifying their election results and blocking those paths for President Trump. So he's still got two months in office and everyone is eyeing very carefully what he will be doing. And if any of it helps the best interests of the Americans as we deal with the coronavirus pandemic here. Karen Kafer, thank you very much for taking the time to join us from Washington this evening. And of course, a lot of people are wondering, whatever it is about the turkeys getting pardoned, will there be friends and family of Donald Trump who need a pardon as well before he leaves the White House? Anyway, our thanks to our guests for joining us, Dr. Ida Milne and Professor Luke O'Neill. That is all we have time for tonight. I'll be back on radio on Today FM tomorrow. Kira will be back here tomorrow night at 10 o'clock. Until then, thanks for watching and a very good night. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Yeah.